The following message was given by Jeff Shinella, a pastoral intern at Valley Creek Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.valleycreek.church. This is only my second time standing here, Um, and I'm so thankful for that. But I'm certain because of that that there are people here who don't know me that well. As Nick said, my name is Jeff Shinella and I am a pastoral intern on the leadership team. Uh, But even if you did know that already, it's likely that you didn't know that I was once known by another name as well. And that's because I could hardly serve in children's ministry without being recognized as Pirate Pete. So back when Valley Creek was little more than a prayer, Nick and I were gaining some crucial ministry experience serving in vacation Bible school. Nick, of course, was the respectable MC. He was the host and island tour guide that week, and I was the dim-witted, treasure-obsessed, comedic relief named Pirate Pete. And I, I think we might have a picture of what that looked like, um, the good old days. We had a great time. And when I found out that I would be preaching this morning from Matthew 6 on treasure, obviously I couldn't help but think of my pirating days. But pirates, treasure maps, you know, gold doubloons, these are things that the Western world has been captivated by for generations. And though not the first, certainly the most famous literary work that still uh, shapes our collective imagination surrounding, you know, pirates and all things treasure is Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island. And now, even if you've never read this book, it's likely that you recognize most of the story. There's cabin boy Jim Hawkins, the one-legged Long John Silver, Yo-Ho-Ho and a bottle of rum. All of these things are from the pages of Treasure Island. And you can learn a lot about a book from its title. And though certainly the main character of that story is Jim Hawkins, it's the treasure It's the treasure that drives the story. If there was no treasure, there would be no adventure, there would be no story. And I think that we could say the same about our own stories. If we wrote a biography, if someone wrote a biography, about your life, you would certainly be the main character, but what drives your story is your treasure. What motivates you more than anything else? What are you willing to sacrifice great things for? And what has captured your heart? As Christ said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if you would, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to be reading from verses 19 through 24. And before I do that, I would like to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this opportunity. Thank you for these wonderful brothers and sisters who, um, who make me feel so good, (laughs) who I just love and have loved getting to enjoy and loved getting to know and enjoyed over these um, many months now. Please help me to rely on your Holy Spirit for this. I pray that we would all be blessed by this word that you have given us. I also pray that um, you would help me not to be coughing a lot during this sermon. (laughs) Thank you so much, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. So, starting in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, 
where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of God. You cannot serve God and money. That is quite a powerful summary. We can only be devoted to one thing. Our hearts have room for one master. So as we examine this single-minded devotion that Christ calls us to, we'll consider three things. We're going to look at treasures on earth, treasures in heaven, and the heart that treasures. Again, treasures on earth, treasures in heaven, and the heart that treasures. Now, I have to apologize ahead of time for those who really wanted me to dig in on the whole eye lamp portion of this text. Uh, Very, very briefly, it is not just an obscure tangent or a rabbit hole, because I believe that the point there is that if we can't see the value and the majesty of God above all worldly treasures, then we're blind and we're lost. But that's all you're going to get from me this morning on that. So I'm sorry, there's just not time for everything. First, treasure on earth. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. According to Jesus, there is a problem with the treasures that we accumulate on earth. They don't last. Moth and rust destroy. The language here evokes pictures of corrosion and consumption and decay. You can think of a once beautiful sports car that's now just rotting in a junkyard. Or or maybe designer clothes that are now worn out, torn, stained, or just out of style. How about a first-generation iPhone? We We were really primitive. Nothing on earth escapes the steady decay of time. But earthly treasures don't just wear out, they're also not secure. Thieves do steal. Seemingly sound investments go south. Think of things like Enron, the housing bubble, or or how about layoffs, unexpected medical bills, there's natural disasters, there's even war. Any assurance that our wealth and possessions are secure is, is really an illusion. And, but maybe you've observed that there seem to be a lot of people who are doing just fine. Despite uh, market woes or runaway inflation, they're doing all right. And you're not wrong about that. Because for the majority of us, the odds are that our wealth, if we have it, isn't going to be unexpectedly swept away. It might, it could, but recent generations have enjoyed unprecedented peace and security and with it 
affluence. Thousands each year sail off into retirement without a care for their material needs because they've got money in the bank. But the point, the point Christ is making about worldly treasure is not primarily, don't get too comfy, because any minute now all of that might just disappear. That's true, and, and the word repeatedly warns against finding our security in money, but the main point is found in the next line. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Or as another translation puts it, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. That's verse 21. <clears throat> so what's wrong with your heart being on earth? Or what's wrong with treasuring the things that we, just, that we find right here? Well, in Treasure Island... There was an old pirate named Ben Gunn, and he had been marooned by his fellow pirates on the very island where Captain Flint's treasure was buried. So you have a man who was left to die surrounded by a fortune. It was a fortune that was absolutely useless to him and offered no hope of deliverance. And that is what it's like for those whose treasure, whose longings are for things on earth. Sometimes in situations like this, it's better just let God's word speak for itself. Hear this from 1 John 2, 15 through 18. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. And later, in Matthew, we hear, we hear these words, spoken by Christ himself. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? That's chapter 16, verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? But no problem, no problem, you might think. I'm not looking to gain the whole world, right? <laughs> Just a little bit. I can be balanced, all things in moderation, right? But is that what Jesus is saying? Remember, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Friends, I realize that these, these are tough words. These are hard pills to swallow. And it's very tempting, tempting for me, maybe tempting for you, to kind of dismiss them or at least to explain them in such a way that that doesn't seem so radical, that makes it not so different from what comes natural to us. But before we just qualify everything away, and especially before we go looking for rules, for rules that make us um, feel better, make us feel like we're not in trouble, you know, how much am I supposed to give and am I allowed to spend my money on this or that, let's just pause, <clears throat> pause for a moment and remember that Jesus turned the world completely upside down. Nearly every one of those disciples listening on that mountain would go on to give up their life for following him. And to this day, we are nearly 2,000 years removed. And almost every good thing that you enjoy in this society, think about every institution that 
tries to make the world a better place. Every instinct that we have to value human life, to help the poor, to educate the masses, to care for the helpless, hospitals, orphanages, charities, these things exist and they feel right because people called Christians truly bought what Jesus was selling. They, they believed it all. They believed one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Love thy neighbor as thyself. There are a lot of people these days who would say that we're living in a post-Christian world, at least, <clears throat> at least in the West. And by that they mean that Christianity, whether you were really a follower of Christ or not, once dominated the culture. It dominated the political and social landscape. It was just the air that we breathed. It was the foundation of everything um, that we took for granted, our outlook on life. But not anymore. We're, we're post-Christian. But it's not that easy to dig up a foundation. Tom Holland, he's the author of a book titled Dominion, <clears throat> How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. He puts it like this. It's a bit of a lengthy quote. Because of Christianity, wrote Friedrich Nietzsche, the measure of a man's compassion for the lowly and suffering comes to be the measure of the loftiness of his soul. The commanding heights of Western culture may now be occupied by people who dismiss Christianity as superstition, but their instincts and assumptions remain no less Christian for that. The risen Christ cannot be eluded simply by refusing to believe in him. That the persecuted and disadvantaged have claims upon the privileged is not remotely a self-evident truth. The cross, that ancient tool of imperial power, remains what it has always been, the fitting symbol of a transfiguration in the affairs of humanity as profound and far-reaching as any in history. God chose the weak things in the world to shame the strong. It is the audacity of it, the audacity of finding in a twisted and defeated corpse the glory of the creator of the universe that serves to explain more surely than anything else the sheer strangeness of Christianity and of the civilization to which it gave birth. <clears throat> Church, nothing is more shocking than the cross of Jesus Christ. That God became man to die for our sins, that the king of the universe would become a servant, that the creator of all things would give up everything, it, it transformed the world. How can we not expect it to transform our priorities or our finances? I'm so thankful that men and women who came before me long before all of us were willing to lay aside all the comforts and enticing treasures of this world and to live for the kingdom of God. Men and women who were more than happy to suffer loss if it meant another sheep would be added to the fold. And I'm thankful that today, I can point to examples in this very room of people who are laboring with the exact same mindset who are giving sacrificially, often in ways that only the Father sees. Before we're through, I will try to clarify a bit more exactly what I think Jesus is calling us to, but at the very least, we ought to know 
that we stand on the shoulders of brothers and sisters who walked the path of our Savior in faith, more than willing to give up earthly treasures for the enduring treasures of heaven. Which brings me to my next point. Let's consider treasures in heaven. You may have heard this phrase. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. This saying was popularized by Randy Alcorn uh, from his book, The Treasure Principle, which is inspired by these verses in Matthew. Randy, he's the founder of Eternal Perspectives Ministry, and um, that ministry, along with his book simply titled Heaven, that's probably his most popular work, it aims to help Christians grasp the reality of heaven and live in light of eternity. And I believe you can't really make sense of this passage without a clear understanding of heaven without a clear picture of what awaits the redeemed. Heaven, or more accurately, the new heavens and the new earth, will one day be our home. You may live right now in Malvern or Paoli or or Westchester, Pennsylvania, but one day you will live somewhere else, somewhere just as concrete, not in some spiritual state of mind or oneness with the universe, but in a physical place, with a physical body, physically in the presence of our Heavenly Father. So when Jesus says, store up treasure in heaven, I don't interpret that as just a metaphor. Now certainly there are numerous examples where this kind of language is likely just referring to heaven itself, to eternal life, to our glorious salvation. And I don't want to mislead anybody about what makes heaven heaven, because it's God. It's being reconciled, to and in perfect fellowship with God. But the scriptures talk an awful lot about heavenly reward. And it would seem that at times there is more going on than just these general references to our salvation. You've already heard multiple passages like this, referring to heavenly reward, that is, in Matthew. Remember when Nick took us through the Beatitudes in Matthew 5? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. And just last week, we were warned that if we do good things so that other people see us and praise us, that's all the reward that we're going to get. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, I think there are probably two things that make some Christians uncomfortable with this whole idea of heavenly rewards. And one of those is that we would even be motivated by the idea of reward to to begin with. I mean, shouldn't we just be motivated by our love for God? But God's word does not set these things in opposition. Our love for the Father And any desire for the blessing and reward that he desires to give us do not need to be in conflict. How else do we make sense of something like Hebrews 11.6, which says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. I was talking recently to a very, very dear friend who is also a relatively new father. And he was describing the affection and the love that he feels for his baby girl. And the only words that he, that could just begin to convey how he felt 
where that at times his heart just like physically aches, like it just hurts with love for that little girl. Because he, he longs, he longs to provide for her, to protect her, and at times to lavish her with gifts so that she will smile and that she will uh, grasp just how precious she is to him. And, and friends, the deepest love that a father or mother has for their child is nothing compared to the love of our Heavenly Father. So if that father sees fit to reward his children for their faithful obedience, don't spurn his generosity. Second on my list of why Christians might struggle with this idea is that in our, our well-meaning efforts to proclaim salvation by grace alone, through faith, not by works, which is 100% true. We may have inadvertently disregarded the place of obedience, both as a product of our, and evidence of our faith and as an individual responsibility that matters, both now and in the age to come. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. We're not going to dive deeply into this, but suffice to say that everyone's experience of heaven won't be identical. There is a reality that our obedience, our faithfulness, and our generosity in this life is of eternal significance. And again, I'm not talking about saved versus unsaved. There is no condemnation for those in Christ. I'm not talking about condemnation. I'm talking about commendation, how God commends us. Will each of us be free from all sin and sorrow? Yes. yes. Will each of us be full of joy and peace? Absolutely. Absolutely. But it may be that our capacity for that joy will vary. Luke 6, 37 through 38 says, Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. The best treatment I could find... And this topic is from a sermon by Jonathan Edwards, which was delivered about 280 years ago. So with a bit of editing for clarity, this is what he said. Christ will reward all according to their works. The steward, this is referring to another uh, passage in Luke, that gained 10 pounds was made ruler over 10 cities. And he that gained five pounds over five cities. Christ tells us that he who gives a cup of cold water to a disciple because he is a disciple shall in no way lose his reward. But this could not be true if a person should have no greater reward for doing many good works than if he only did a few. All shall be perfectly happy. Everyone shall be perfectly satisfied. Every vessel that is cast into this ocean of happiness is full, though there are some vessels far larger than others. Friends, I, I really do not know all that awaits us in glory. I do know that the reward of heaven is God himself. And anything beyond that 
will only serve to magnify our enjoyment of him. And if that's the case, I can't imagine anything more worthy of pursuing. All right, so we've touched on treasures on earth. We've looked at treasures in heaven. And now, my favorite part, we come to the heart, the heart that treasures. And I'm wondering at this point if, if anyone is really surprised that I just haven't talked a lot about giving uh, so far. And the reason for that is because giving is secondary. The heart is what God cares about. And I hope that's not surprising to you because that's how it has always been. You may remember in the Old Testament when the prophet Samuel was sent to anoint a new king in place of Saul. And he sees one of David's older brothers. And he thinks, surely, surely this impressive specimen must be the king. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So, brothers, sisters, even if he's 6'1", strong jaw, hair of a teenager, doesn't really mean that he has all the answers. I'm, I'm telling you, just, you know, do you know most CEOs, American presidents, tall guys. Well, that could be the problem. But I digress. <laughs> when you have a moment, try to look up all the passages that mention money, wealth, treasure, greed, generosity, giving, it's going to take you a long time. But if you do, what I think you would see is that for all this talk about money, money's never the point. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's the heart that matters. And I think the reason that scripture says so much about money is precisely because of its relationship to our hearts. And that relationship is actually pretty unique because money has this ability to both reveal what's in our hearts and potentially change them. So how does money reveal our hearts? Well, think back to that buried treasure from Treasure Island. Whether it's gold doubloons, cash, stocks, the stuff is basically useless by itself, right? Our money is only useful because enough people have agreed that it represents a measurable value, a value that can be exchanged for other things that we desire. How do you even know how much you desire something? You know, what's it worth to you? The question itself implies how much are you willing to pay for it? So money, in a very real sense, is how we measure and quantify our desires. Not the only way, but arguably the most common. The more desirable, the more valuable, the more money it's worth to us. And how fascinating that people ascribe vastly different values to the very same things. There are people who would fork out you know, big money for some fancy sushi dinner, I might be one of them, and there's other people who, you know, you couldn't pay them to eat it. <laughs> I love how this point is illustrated both positively and negatively by two interactions that probably happened within hours of each other. And they're found in Luke 18 and 19. They're separated by just a few verses. It's Jesus, he's setting out <clears throat> on a journey that will also ultimately bring him to Jerusalem. And He's approached by a rich young ruler. 
who, by the way, is mentioned in Matthew and Mark as well. So in summary, this man comes up to Jesus. He asks him how he might inherit eternal life. And Jesus responds, obey the commandments, listing out several of them, several of the Ten Commandments, that is, but conspicuously not the first or the tenth, to which the man replies, got it, check. Been doing that since I was a little boy. And picking up in verse 22, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, well, you, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So this young man's money, namely his inability to part with it, revealed what was really in his heart. And I think it's interesting, if you read this, this section of scripture, just how many people are discouraged, rebuked for trying to get Jesus' attention. You've got people bringing their children to be blessed. You've got this blind beggar crying out. Quiet, Jesus doesn't have time for you. But not this distinguished man. Nobody stands in his way. And money can do that for you. But it can also blind us to our real needs. Matthew, Mark, Luke, each gospel writer was inspired to include this account and Jesus' response that it is hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. But it's the love of money, right? That's the problem. That's what 1 Timothy 6 says. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. But Jesus doesn't say it's hard for the rich who love their money. He just says the rich. And why? I think probably because it's hard for the rich not to love their money. But don't lose hope. Like the, like, like the disciples did. <laughs> With God it is possible. Which brings us to the very next interaction. Again, just a few verses later. Jesus, on that journey, arrives in Jericho. And there he comes across a man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, like the young ruler, was very wealthy. However, Zacchaeus was a tax collector, a chief tax collector, which means he was a traitor to the Jewish people, collecting taxes for Rome and getting rich in the process. People like him were mentioned in the same breath as Gentiles, sinners, extortioners, adulterers. We're also told that he was short, so maybe there's hope. <laughs> Let's pick up in verse 3. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, Hurry down and hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they, that's the crowd, saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. 
And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus' money also revealed his heart. But his heart was one that joyfully received the Savior. It was a repentant heart that sought to make amends for his past sin, and it was a heart of faith that counted Christ more valuable than his earthly treasure. And how interesting that Jesus didn't say to Zacchaeus, well, listen, Zacchaeus, you know, that's, that's really good and all, but I just told the last guy that he had to sell everything. So... It wouldn't really be fair to let you off (laughs) for just half. (laughs) And that's because the giving is secondary. The heart is primary. And Jesus, just like the Father, looks on the heart. And he saw a heart that loved him. So, a few just closing thoughts for our meditation, our application. It'll kind of be like a little Q&A. But I'm asking the questions. One. How does Jesus want his followers to use their money? Well, all of your resources, your talents, your time, and your money are gifts from God. Use them generously to bring him glory. Use them to make him known and to carry out his will on earth. Be a blessing to others as he has immeasurably blessed you in Christ. Question two. What if I'm wealthy? Am I in trouble? No. Or at least not necessarily. (laughs) It's true that the wealthy in this life receive particular warnings throughout the scriptures. There are dangerous temptations that come with ample financial resources. The kind that make reliance on God and prayers like, give us this day our daily bread, feel a bit unnecessary. There are certain, there's a certain prestige or position that comes with money that makes associating with the lowly maybe a little more difficult or that we feel the need to protect and maintain in a way that can compete with our devotion to God. But the truth is, no human is immune to these temptations. There are plenty who are not wealthy but greatly desire to be so and their warnings are just as sobering. 1 Timothy 6.9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So what does God call the wealthy to? It's, in the most important sense, the same as everyone else. Be good stewards of what the Lord has richly supplied. Just a few verses later, Paul addresses those who are already wealthy, and this is what he says. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. What about tithing? Tithe literally means 10%, a tenth. 
excuse me, and it refers to the practice of setting aside 10% of your produce for a specific purpose. Now, this passage in Matthew, not about tithing. But the commonly held understanding is that, well, the Israelites, they were commanded to give 10% of what they produced to the Levitical priests for for their, their livelihood, for the support of the temple. So Christians should do the same. Here's what I'll say. First, the Israelites were likely practicing three tithes Depending on the year, one was to the Levitical priests, one was to the poor. There was another tithe that was actually set aside for themselves to enjoy in some kind of feast at a particular time. And these tithes also don't include many other offerings that they were expected to give under different circumstances. But you will find no New Testament command to tithe, as you would expect. The law is now written on our hearts. So in place of a list of rules, you have examples like Zacchaeus, who actually, according to the law, was only required to add 20% to his restitution, not 400%. And you see believers selling their possessions and sharing generously so that each other's needs are met. You find churches in places like Macedonia who themselves were in extreme poverty, begging for an opportunity to help other believers who were in trouble. Now, would most churches, including Valley Creek, be well supported to carry out gospel mission if their members gave 10%? Absolutely. And could that be a helpful place to start when considering how to steward the resources that God has provided for you? Certainly. But I really do mean this. I would be equally concerned about a brother or sister who scoffs at that idea, who scoffs at the idea of releasing a tenth of what the Lord has given them, as the brother or sister who believes that their 10% auto-debit keeps them on God's good side, whose giving really masks an indifferent heart. Finally, I just want to express, as Nick has already done, how thankful we are for you. What a privilege it is to preach a message like this to a church like you. Because since the moment that Valley Creek launched, and for a lot of you even before that, um, your generosity has astounded the leadership team. I can remember these early meetings where we're trying to plan and budget, you know, what kind of support could we hope for in this first year of ministry? And we have been repeatedly underestimating your generosity and the Lord's provision through it. So thank you so much. Thank you for your faith. Thank you for prioritizing the work that God is doing through this church. We want nothing more than to be faithful and wise stewards of every penny so that this church might be healthy, would impact this community, and see lives transformed all to his glory. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Jeff Shinella given at Valley Creek Church. For more information on the church and other messages, please visit us online at www.valleycreek.church.